I thank you for this lesson. It was a hard one, but I know, Lord, that you have something for us to learn from this. Lord, I just pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see and hear and understand what it is that you have for us to learn today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Mark chapter 10, all 52 verses. When I first got this, I thought, oh, good, only one chapter. Then I started studying. All right. When you study through books of the Bible, one of the greatest blessings is that sooner or later you will study on every subject imaginable. One of the hardships is that sooner or later you're going to study every subject imaginable. You're forced to face topics such as the one that begins Mark chapter 10, divorce. We are living in an age when nearly every family has been touched by the cold hand of divorce. When 51% of marriages in America fail, it stands to reason that divorce is a reality in most families. There are many here today who know the pain, the shame, and the turmoil that divorce brings. I am one of those people. I'm not trying to add insult to injury by what I have to say to you today. I know you have already been hurt. My job is to teach what Jesus said about this issue in as loving a way as possible. People have some pretty strong opinions about divorce and about the people who have been through divorce. I know some of you will not agree with all of the things I have to say today. In my flesh, I don't really like some of the conclusions I have come to as I've studied. I've had to let go of some long-held beliefs that the Spirit has brought to light. I have tried to be faithful to what the Word of God says. Jesus continued his march <clears throat> towards Jerusalem. He left Capernaum on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and went south, entering Judea on the eastern side of the Jordan, the area where John the Baptist had ministered. As usual, there were crowds, and as usual, Jesus taught them. And here come the Pharisees to try to trap him. These guys are relentless, aren't they? This district was ruled by Herod Antipas, which may explain why they tried to trap Jesus by asking a question about divorce. After all, John the Baptist has lost his head because he preached against Herod's adultery and divorce. The Greek word used here suggests that they were jabbing at him verbally, trying to stir up trouble, to catch him saying something which would provoke a, a crisis. They may have been trying to get Jesus to make a choice between the two views which were widely held in that day, represented by two main schools of thought. One was the teaching of Rabbi Hillel. Moses, in Deuteronomy 24, had said that a man could divorce his wife if he found any indecency in her. Well, Hillel interpreted that to mean anything which displeased the husband. So if the wife made bad food if she was argumentative, if he found somebody prettier or whatever, she could be divorced. Talk about walking on eggshells, right? Opposed to that was the school of Rabbi Shammai, who taught that the only lawful reason a divorce was, would be granted was for adultery. Only the man was allowed to seek a divorce. Women couldn't divorce their husbands. The nation was split between these two schools of thought. Most of the Pharisees followed the teaching of Hillel. This is clear in Matthew's account of this encounter 
In Matthew 19.3, they ask, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for any reason? Isn't it ironic that the Pharisees who were so strict in every other area were so liberal in this area? Most of the Pharisees married and divorced as it pleased them. Of course, this is the way of a legalist. They always find loopholes to please the flesh. Jesus asked them, what does Moses say about divorce? Jesus knows what he believes, what they believe, and he knows that the opinions of men are irrelevant. So he focuses on the issue of God's word. Their answer, he said a man merely has to write his wife an official letter of divorce and send her away. Showed that these men felt that divorce was their right. A careful reading of Deuteronomy 24 clearly reveals that these verses were given to regulate a situation that had gotten out of hand. Jesus explained that Moses' words about divorce weren't a command or a liberty, but a divine concession because of human hardness of heart. The point was that divorce was already taking place among the Israelites. Moses put limitations on it by requiring a certificate of divorce to be made out indicating the reasons for the, separ the separation. This involved hiring a scribe and going through a legal procedure. Moses wasn't encouraging divorce, but seeking to discourage it. The law Moses gave them was given to control a sinful system that arose out of man's refusal to honor God's ideal for marriage. The Lord then took them back beyond Moses to the record of creation. It was God who established marriage, and he alone has the right to make the rules. The marriage of one man to one woman for life is the foundation of stable society. The relationship is sacred and permanent. It's the most intimate union in the human race, for the two become one flesh. While the spiritual element is vitally important in marriage, the emphasis here is that marriage is a physical union and only a physical cause can break it, either death or unfaithfulness. The man is to leave his parents. The Greek has a strong compound verb meaning to leave behind or to forsake and cleave to his wife. Again, the verb is a strong one, shall be glued. Marriage is more than a business contract. The two are united into one. They are glued together. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one separate them, for God has joined them together. Joined is literally the word yoked. Just like a pair of oxen yoked together had to function in close unity, so should a husband and wife team. When they returned to the house, the disciples asked for clarification on this subject of divorce. Jesus stated the matter bluntly. Whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. In Matthew 19.9, Jesus reaffirms what he said in Mark, but adds what is known as the exception clause. It is also mentioned in Matthew 5.32. Jesus says, and I tell you this, a man who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Then, for his Roman readers, Mark included, and if a woman divorces her husband and remarries, she commits adultery. Matthew omits this because Jewish women didn't have the legal right to divorce their husbands, 
but Greek and Roman wives did. It seems clear that Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, allows for divorce in cases of gross, unrepentant sexual sin. This does not mean that a person should divorce their spouse for committing adultery. It does open the door for divorce in cases where one of the marriage partners lives a lifestyle of open, unrepentant sexual sin. Divorce is never commanded. And even in this kind of extreme situation, should always be the last resort. No one is ever ordered to get a divorce. Reconciliation, repentance, <clears throat> and restoration should all come first. Both partners are under the obligation of doing everything in their power to ensure the success of their marriage. Marriage is an illustration of how the Lord loves us, and he doesn't throw us away when we fall. Now, having said that, God gave the provision for ending a marriage if the trust that is at the very heart and foundation of the marital union is violated. Putting pressure on someone to stay in a marriage where there has been adultery can cause a lot of damage. We can't take away rights Jesus gives to his people. Also, I don't believe the Lord would have a woman to continue to live in a situation where her life is threatened. Neither do I believe that she should keep her children in such an environment. There are situations where the physical and emotional abuse is so strong that the couple cannot continue to live under the same roof. Separation is a possibility, but remarriage is not an option. To wrap it up, divorce is a sin, and it is always the result of sin, but it is a sin no greater than any other sin and can be fully forgiven by the Lord. Those who have been through a divorce are not second-class citizens in the church and should never be treated as such. If God forgives, then his people must forgive as well. And if you are divorced for some other reason than the reasons allowed in the word of God and you have remarried, you have committed adultery. You do not live in adultery, but you have sinned. And if you haven't already, you need to repent and ask God to forgive you. These sins are what sent Jesus to the cross, and all who put their trust in him are forgiven. Jesus has just finished teaching about the very serious matter of marriage and divorce. As soon as that discussion is finished, he turns his attention to some little children that are being brought to him by their parents. It was a Jewish tradition to bring small children to a rabbi so that he could bless them and pray for them. These parents are severely rebuked by the Lord's disciples. Apparently, they felt that the master's time was too valuable to spend on small children. Jesus, in turn, rebuked them for their attitude. He told the disciples in no uncertain terms that little children were what the kingdom of heaven was all about. Children are trusting and humble and obedient and dependent. I said obedient. That's not true. <laughs> <coughs> they are so trusting that they have to be warned not to talk to strangers. They are so humble that they will readily accept what they are told. They are so dependent that they simply rest in the ability and willingness of those around them to meet their needs. They don't worry over food or clothing or shelter. They don't worry about who's going to pay the bills Children don't doubt that their family members love them. They simply accept profound things by faith. They don't look beyond the obvious. They just believe. 
Those are the requirements for a person to come to Jesus, for a person to be saved regardless of their age. They must be willing to humble themselves before God, to lay down their pride over the life they have lived and the accomplishments of that life. They must humble themselves by acknowledging their sins before God and be willing to admit that their works and religious activity can never save them. They must come to the place where they, like a little child, simply look to Jesus in pure faith, trusting him and and his finished work on the cross completely for their salvation. They need to trust that he will do everything he has promised to do. Contrast this image of childlike faith with the very next passage. And I need a drink. Sorry. When the, ring, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he refused to turn loose his pride, his money, or his self-righteousness. He left with all his possessions, but he left without Jesus. This story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark tells us that Jesus was in, the, was in the act of leaving the house where he had blessed the children, ready to resume his journey toward Jerusalem when he was met by a rich man. Matthew supplies that he was young and Luke that he was a ruler. Now, some take this to mean that he was a ruler in a local synagogue, while others think the fact that he is young doesn't uphold that view. At any rate, he was an influential man despite his young age. He had wealth and exemplary conduct, someone whom we would think of today as a credit to his parents, a son to be proud of. He wasn't a disinterested bystander. He came to Jesus eagerly and respectfully. He fell on his knees before Jesus, and he addressed him in a manner intended to show honor. Good rabbi or good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He knew he lacked salvation, but he came with the typical assumption that there was something he must do, that eternal life must be earned. The Greek tense of the verb do implies action, the achievement of some great feat, which he expected Jesus to point out to him, something that would assure him eternal life after what he had already achieved. In Jewish usage, the word inherit carried the sense of coming into possession of or obtaining something. He assumed that he had the necessary ability and willingness to do whatever was yet required. All he needed was to know what that was. Jesus gave him an interesting answer. Why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. Some have said that Jesus was using this opportunity to assert that he wasn't God. Well, that's just nonsense. All of the gospel writers, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, give proof that Jesus is God. Jesus was calling attention to this man's superficial understanding of goodness. The young man thought of goodness as a personal moral achievement and regarded Jesus as one who had excelled in this area. He needed to recognize that God alone is good. He is the only source of the salvation which he sought to attain by his own effort. He had called Jesus good teacher. The words were accurate, but he didn't understand why. Jesus continues his answer. But as for your question, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely. Do not cheat. 
honor your father and mother. He quotes those commandments dealing with how we relate to one another. The rich young ruler replies, I've obeyed all these commands since I was a child. You can almost hear his sigh of relief. Is that it? Check, I've done that. It's obvious he hadn't been in the crowd to hear the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus explained that lust in the heart equals adultery and being angry at another is the same as murder. The demands of God's law are so much deeper than outward obedience. He had lived an outwardly exemplary life, but his quest betrayed the spiritual void in his heart. So what does Jesus say about this ridiculous claim? Are you kidding me? You haven't kept my commandments since you got up this morning, much less since you were a boy. Well, no, since this is God and not Miriam, the creator and sustainer of the universe looked at this man and he loved him. This wasn't an emotional affection, but a spiritual love that doesn't take into account the merit of the one loved, but desires the best for him. Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew that he really believed that he had kept the law. And he truly wanted to know how to inherit eternal life. In short, he was thoroughly lost. And Jesus reacted with compassion. In love, Jesus declares his diagnosis. You lack only one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give the money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, ladies, Jesus wasn't setting down a universal rule. He wasn't saying that everyone who wishes to be saved has to get rid of all of their property and live a life of poverty and self-denial. We can keep our jewelry, our bank accounts, and most importantly, our shoes. Thank you, Jesus. He was addressing a specific individual whose root sin was that his wealth had usurped the place of God in his life. He must tear himself away from his earthly possessions and his self-righteous achievements so that God can fill the place of supreme worth in his life. This man needed to get his priorities right. The Lord wasn't telling him to sell his possessions in order to earn a reward. His willingness to carry out the Lord's command would be external evidence that he had removed the idol from his heart and fixed his devotion on God. At this, the man's face fell, and he went sadly away because he had many possessions. The word sad really isn't strong enough. The Greek word used by Mark shows that he was downcast. He was appalled. He was shocked and devastated. He walked away from Jesus in sorrow. He wanted God, but not at the cost of his gold. He thought his own possessions were worth more than the riches of the kingdom of God. He was rich, but in reality, he was bankrupt. That is the condition of all of humanity. We are all debtors to God and have no hope of paying what we owe. The minute we sin, we are in debt to the righteousness of God. The tragedy of the rich young ruler was that the answer to his debt problem was standing right in front of him. Christ was the only possible debt relief for him, and he is the only possible debt relief for us. The good news is that he is at hand waiting for us to call on him. That is what the gospel is about. Christ pays our debt and he gives us his righteousness, which is the only thing that will satisfy the demands of God's law. By faith, when we put our trust in Christ alone, 
we receive what we need to get into the kingdom of God. We inherit eternal life through Christ. Like any inheritance, it's a gift, not a payment that we earn. I imagine Jesus must have also been sad as he watched the young man leave. Then he turned around toward his disciples and said, how hard it is for rich people to get into the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished. The Jews commonly looked on material prosperity as a sign of God's favor. In response to their amazement, Jesus made a further pronouncement. Dear children, it is very hard to get into the kingdom of God. Some manuscripts add, for those who trust in riches. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the, enter the kingdom of God. Those words bring into sharp focus the real danger of riches. The rich, having their basic needs met, often become self-reliant. Their abundance and self-sufficiency become their deficiency. Jesus painted a perfectly ridiculous picture of the inability of a camel to go through the eye of a needle in order to impress the truth permanently on the memories of his hearers. The disciples continued to be astounded, asking, then who in the world can be saved? Jesus' answer is simple and clear. The impossibility is only on the human side. Everything is possible with God. Humanly speaking, no one can be saved. The Holy Spirit inter intervenes in the lives of people and cuts through the hardness of their hearts. By God's power and grace, whoever turns fully to God and trusts in him will find salvation. Well, here comes the ever-impulsive Peter. He began to mention all that the disciples had left behind to follow Jesus, suggesting that the 12 were still thinking in terms of material rather than spiritual riches. Jesus gave Peter a tremendous promise, one that applies to us also. If we are willing to give up all for him, we will receive a hundredfold more in return. In other words, the highest degree of return. It will be a kind of return, it will be a returning kind but different, a spiritual relationship and possessions in exchange for natural connections and material substance. Jesus acknowledges that following him will bring persecution, but the one who follows Christ all the way simply can't lose. In the end, there will be surprises in the kingdom. Some who are now first will be last, while the lowly in this life will be first. This is a wise warning against the self-seeking spirit which lurked behind Peter's comment. The rewards of the kingdom are given based on confidence in God, not on any human ideas of merit or self-seeking service. In that kingdom, the only thing that will matter is faithfulness to Christ. On two previous occasions, Jesus had tried to tell his men that he was sent to this world to die. The first time was in Mark 8.31. On that occasion, Peter rebuked the Lord and couldn't grasp what Jesus was trying to tell them. On the second occasion, Mark 9.31, they were all confounded by what Jesus said and couldn't get their minds around the fact that he had to die. The Jews were looking for the Messiah, but they were looking for a military leader not a man who gets himself executed. They simply couldn't comprehend the truth that Messiah would have to die to accomplish his divine mission on earth. Jesus was making his way from the area north of the Sea of Galilee 
southward through Israel toward Jerusalem. He was nearing the end of his journey. Mark tells us that Jesus was walking ahead of them. This phrase has the idea that Jesus just kept going and going. It's a picture of a man whose mind is made up, one who is determined to go somewhere and who refuses to be distracted from his mission. The disciples were filled with dread and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. The disciples are afraid for Jesus and for themselves because they know the Jewish leaders hate Jesus. The event that has thrown the leaders over the edge is the miracle involving the raising of Lazarus from the dead told in John chapter 11. This miracle, was, which so clearly identified Jesus as God in the flesh, was the miracle that cemented the Jews in their unbelief. They hate Jesus so much that they are determined to see him dead. The disciples know this, and they are amazed that Jesus seems determined to march to his death. Isaiah had predicted um, in chapter 50, verse 7, that Messiah would set his face like flint and be determined to do God's will. So once again, Jesus tells his disciples what is about to take place. He gives them the clearest and most detailed statement about his impending death. As Jesus spoke to them there on the road to Jerusalem, his words weren't what they wanted to hear. He tells them in very clear terms what is about to happen to him in Jerusalem. He would be betrayed, sentenced by the leading priests and teachers of religious law, delivered to the Romans, mocked, scourged, spat upon, and killed. After three days, he will rise again. No sooner had Jesus said these things than two of his most trusted disciples came to him with a request. They still weren't getting the message. Their deep-rooted expectation that Jesus would soon unveil his messianic rule blocked any comprehension of the actual meaning of Jesus' predictions. They had a don't-confuse-me-with-the-facts mentality. James and John asked that they be allowed to sit with Jesus in the highest positions of his coming kingdom. They wanted to be close to Jesus in the kingdom, to have the glory and honor that came with the throne, and to have positions of authority. So what made these two think that they could ask for such things? Well, Matthew tells us that Salome, their mother, made the request first. Salome was Mary's sister, making her Jesus' aunt and James and John his first cousin. So, blood first, right? Second, they were claiming the promises Jesus had made in Matthew 9:28, where he had promised thrones, power, and position in the kingdom. They were asking for what would be given to them but they didn't understand the Lord's timing. These men never did grasp the idea that Jesus was headed to a cross. All they could see was the crown. Their interest was climbing to the top of the pile. Jesus is telling them that he is about to die for sin, and they're playing who's on first. They wanted the crown without the cross to be rewarded without having to pay the price. Their problem was the same problem we have today. We are more concerned with what we think we deserve more concerned with our rights than we are with the glory of God. What if God gets more glory from my finishing last? Jesus responds by telling them that they have no idea what they're asking for. He asks them if they are willing and able to experience all that he is about to endure. Their answer is stunning in its ignorance. We are able. They will experience his anguish to a degree 
These men would walk the same road that Jesus walked, but they could never endure what he is about to suffer. Then he tells them that positions in the kingdom won't be given out based on selfish ambition, but according to the sovereign will of God. So what about the other 10? Well, when they heard what James and John were up to, they were angry and indignant. Now we know that they had previously debated amongst themselves who would be regarded as the greatest. So their reaction seems no better than the request. They take offense because James and John had asked for what they all wanted. Jesus doesn't allow their anger to simmer. Rather, he addresses the issue at hand and calls their attention to the Gentile world around them. Those who rule in this world rise to the top by grabbing power and oppressing their opponents. The disciples need to understand, as do we, that God has a higher goal for his children. If you really want to be a leader, then you must learn how to serve. The idea is this, being willing to get none of the glory, being willing to do the most menial of tasks with no thought of receiving recognition or thanks. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you need to start by being a slave of all. Finally, Jesus states, For even I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. The word even reminds us who Jesus is. If anyone who ever walked this earth should have been served, it was Jesus. If our Lord is willing to serve sinful humanity, we should be willing to serve as well. The cost of service for our Lord was extremely high. He willingly went to his death to save those who cared nothing for him. He experienced the undiluted wrath of Almighty God to serve us. He willingly entered into death so that others might enter into life. Why did he do it? Because he loves you. He loves me and he hates sin. He did it to satisfy God's demand for a perfect human sacrifice and to please the Father. He did it to set us free from the tyranny of sin. All right, we're getting to the end. Jesus and his disciples have reached Jericho. This isn't the same Jericho whose wall had come tumbling down. This was a popular resort city built by Herod the Great in the Judean desert, not far from the Jordan River crossing. Most of the people were blind to who Jesus was. Only a few people in that great crowd recognized the Son of God as he moved among men. But there was one man in that crowd that received 2020 spiritual vision that day, a blind man named Bartimaeus. He sat there begging. He heard the crowds pass by, and he heard the excited voices of the people. Luke tells us that he asked what it meant, and someone told him it was Jesus. And Bartimaeus began to cry out. I think that hope was beginning to build in his heart. The people tried to stop him, but he cried out even louder. This was his only hope, and he knew it. Bartimaeus may have been blind, but he saw some things that others didn't see. He understood that Jesus was the Messiah. That's why he called him the son of David. And he understood that he needed Jesus' mercy. Jesus heard the cry, and he calls for the people to bring Bartimaeus to him. Imagine how Bartimaeus must have felt. Day after day, he sat by this road with people passing him by, most of them simply ignoring him. But today, he has caught the attention of the Lord. He jumps up, 
throws aside his outer garment and comes to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. Bartimaeus responds in faith, faith and asks for healing. He wants to see. He addresses Jesus as Rabboni, which means far more than teacher. The term was an expression of personal faith. This is the same title Mary Magdalene exclaimed when she saw Jesus on the morning of his resurrection. Bartimaeus was saying, my Lord and my master, let me see. Go, your faith has saved you or made you well. He immediately received his sight and he followed Jesus. This is the last healing miracle recorded in the Gospel of Mark. So ladies, now what? Well, if you've been healed of your blindness and been made whole by the Lord's merciful gift of salvation, then follow him and keep following him. For those of you who haven't yet sought the Lord in repentance, then I invite you to come to Jesus right now. If you feel a tug on your heart, come. Today is the day of your salvation. He will save you if you respond to him. Let's pray. Father God, there's just so much here. I just pray, Lord, that, um, that you will help us to follow you, Lord, and to keep following you. Help us to keep short accounts with you, to live a life of repentance before you. Lord, I just pray as we disperse now and go our separate ways that you would keep us safe and keep us mindful of what we've learned here today. In your precious name we pray, amen.